Wait a minute. Wait a minute. You ain't heard nothing yet. All right, Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close up. I'll just go up sometimes. See me. in your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night, sir. The uh, that dreams are made of. Hey everybody, Kirk here. I uh, just want to say before we start the episode, make sure you follow us on Twitter. And Facebook. And if you enjoy the episode, make sure to leave us a rating and a comment on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. We love to hear your feedback, and you can find us on any social media by searching Silver Screen Time Machine. We appreciate your feedback. Look forward to hearing from you. Hello, and welcome again to Silver Screen Time Machine, Wendy and Kirk's Classic Film Review. Hello, Kirk. Hello, Wendy. How are you today? I'm doing great. And so, Kirk, what film are we going to be talking about today? We're getting in our time machine. We're going back to when? We are going back to the year 1955. And the movie we're going to talk about today is Bad Day at Black Rock. Uh, Bad Day at Black Rock. I love this film. This is the first time I ever saw it. <laughs> did you? I'd never seen it before. Did you like it? I did. This is my kind of movie. Yeah, it's a great film. Yeah, I love one-day movies. I love movies of that kind of intensity and just all that kind of action packed into a short time frame. So yeah, this is right up my alley. Oh, awesome. I'm yeah. so glad I picked one that you liked this time. Definitely. <laughs> so the thing that's very interesting, I think, about this particular film, Bad Day at Black Rock, is sort of the classification of what is this film? What genre does this belong in? Because it has numerous genres. Like I read, they called it a neo-Western, they called it a crime drama. So I think neo-Western is a really good word to describe it, or even a Western noir. What are your thoughts? Yeah, it definitely had a very Western feel. It was funny, I'm watching this movie and I'm thinking of all the Westerns that it was probably influenced by. Mm -hmm. And it dawned on me that a lot of the movies I was thinking of actually came out after this movie. You know, I saw a lot of Once Upon a Time in the West, a lot yes. of Good, Bad, and the Ugly, a lot of The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. And those are all movies that this movie predates. Right. So that was really interesting to me. But yeah, there's definitely a ton of Western elements to this. So yeah, neo-noir, I mean, neo-Western or maybe revisionist Western. Yes, that is actually said as well. Revisionist Westerns, we know how you like those, Kirk. Yes. So as far as a neo-Western goes, if you're not familiar with this term, I looked it up in Wikipedia just to see what exactly that encompassed. And it says it's set in modern modern day, which this film was sort of set in modern day for the time period. Sure. And the movie is set in 1945, right? And yes. it was made in 1955. So mm -hmm. it's pretty much modern day at that point. Yeah. And then it says there's a lack of rules with morals guided by the character or audience instincts of right or wrong rather than governance. And we definitely don't have governance here in this particular film. We have a main character doing whatever he wants. Right? Yeah, absolutely. Another theme is characters searching for justice. Sure. We have that. The third theme is characters feeling remorse. Okay. So we do That's have what's... some characters that are feeling remorse. Yes. Not necessarily our main villain. I don't think he's very remorseful. No. So that's what some of the things for a neo-Western. So to me, that fits perfectly. But what are your thoughts? Yeah, definitely. I think you have that combination of new and old. You know, if we want to get to the movie a little bit itself, when Spencer Tracy shows up at the beginning of this movie, he, he gets off a train. He's dressed in a suit. He has a fedora. He looks very contemporary for a 1945 right. man. And he looks almost... Almost like my first thought was he looks like a time traveler like he looks out of place <laughs> he came to the old west because you yeah. 
you yeah. see this place, you see the way it looks, the way people are dressed. It's a town that time has passed by. And we find out throughout the story as to why, and we'll probably get into that a little bit. Definitely has, other than Spencer Tracy, if you take his character out of this, this could have taken place in 1880, 1900, any time frame like that. He's the one thing that's kind of incongruous to the rest of this movie. And you know what? I think that there's another reason why you feel that way about this film, because the set was built, the town set was built, and it was shot on location in Lone Pine, California, which is one of the most used locations for Westerns and other pictures throughout film history. Yeah, it's probably why it felt so familiar, yeah. because it had <laughs> those movies I mentioned very likely were filmed in some of those locations. Yeah, it has such the beautiful backdrop of the mountains. It's the areas at the foot of Mount Whitney and the eastern slope of Sierra Nevadas. And of course, it has that sort of remoteness to it. Sure. And this was necessary for the film because it's supposed to be sort of this lost town out in the middle of nowhere really yeah and it did have an actual unused stretch of train track and that's what of course made it very appealing because they needed to have the train coming in so that was really ideal for this particular film. And I think I mentioned Once Upon a Time in the West. I don't know if it was the same tr- set of track in the same station, but it looks very much like yeah. it. it feels, again, like they watched this movie and said, we want that location for our movie. Yeah, and so why don't you explain a little bit about revisionist westerns? I think it's going to be very similar to the neo-western. Yeah, definitely. I mean, it has that same moral ambiguity to it. It takes the, the old west ideas and it kind of looks at them from a more modern lens. It calls those ideas the glorification of the old west and the wild west into question and the idea of the white hats the black hats and the good guys and the bad guys what was that all about what was all for were they right were they wrong you know it asked those questions that the traditional older westerns may not have yeah also called a crime drama when i looked that up it said crime dramas are films that focus on the moral dilemmas of criminals they differ from crime thrillers as the films generally focus on a grimmer and more realistic portrayal of the criminal world over violence and gunplay so you don't have this sort of crazy violence gunplay thing you actually have realistic crimes and I think that this film does do that yeah there's not a lot of act I, I wouldn't say there's not a lot of action but there's not a lot of the big explosive there's not the, you know the big shoot the dramatic shootouts with all the Correct. action and the and the different cuts and things like that you might get with a, a more action-packed thriller kind of movie it is more about the threat of violence and is the violence itself yeah and there's definitely a dilemma with the criminals whether it's is it a moral dilemma though or is it I think some of them yes yeah. some yeah. of them or have the moral dilemma. Some of them just have the dilemma of not knowing what to do in the situation or not knowing what's going on. So I guess I'd like to maybe, before we start talking about some other elements, talk about the beginning. Spencer Tracy comes in, this man comes into this town, Black Rock. Yes. And it's this crazy thing because apparently nobody has come into the town in four years. Yeah. The train hasn't even stopped in the station in four years and the telegraph operator is beside himself Mm -hmm. because somebody's come in and nobody notified him and he's freaking out. That's Mr. Hastings, I believe, was the telegraph operator. I'll go even, you know, talking about the very beginning of the movie. Yeah. I think it sets the scene so well because did you notice how fired up Leo the lion was? When you watch an MGM movie and you 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 fade into the The lion, usually he's sitting there and you get a roar, and then maybe another roar, maybe a third roar. But he's, he's kind of calm. In this movie, it, as you're fading in, he's already roaring. <laughs> and it just it was such a different feel for that for those movies. You know, I love that MGM logo and that banner. It's always been so much fun. But he is roaring. He's fired up and ready to go. Then you get that train coming, train coming in. At you. you get that music. And the train, they said about the train, they couldn't get the aerial shot of the train coming towards them at for you. obvious reasons. Yeah. So they actually had the train going backwards, and they had the helicopter following it, and they played that backwards. But... 
you have that intensity of training, the intensity of music, and right from literally the opening seconds of the movie, you have this intensity to it. You're like, yeah. what's going on? And I think it's carried over what you're talking about. When he walks into this town, no one stops here, no one comes here, and everybody is immediately on edge. Yes. The time, yep. They don't know why he's there. But just the fact that he is there, there's an outsider here. Everybody's immediately on edge. Some people are nervous. Some people are angry. Yep. But what's going on here? Why is everybody so on edge all of a sudden? He's clearly not made welcome <laughs> everywhere he tries to go. He's just trying to behave like a normal person. He's just, oh, I'm in a town. I'm going to go inquire about a place to stay, a, a sure. cab to get to where I'm going. And nobody wants to accommodate him. They're just flat out. The guy in the hotel tells him, nope, we don't have any vacancies. Yeah, immediately. Yeah, for, just, again, from our perspective and from his, his perspective, no reason. Yeah, he just, doesn't. He, he has no idea. Everywhere he goes, he can't get something to eat. He can't get a room. Everybody's immediately ready to turn him away. Yeah, and he's got these kind of thugs that are kind of lurking around yeah. following him, one of them being played by one of the greatest thug actors of all time, Lee Marvin, Yeah, uh, one of my favorites, too. And he's essentially playing Liberty Valance. In a more modern role. Yeah, mm-hmm. but it's, it's that same kind of character, just just that bully type yes. who's going to push you around. And he's always lurking. He's always just showing he's always up. Hanging around. Yeah, there's 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 some great scenes in here where there's just two characters talking and the camera pans over and he's just there. And you know what, Lee Marvin is a great one for having a menacing stillness yeah. where he's not doing anything whatsoever, but he just being there, his presence is menacing. Absolutely. Of course, Lee Marvin's a tall guy, definitely over six foot, and he kind of just looks mean yeah. <laughs> in general. He had a career playing these kind of parts, even Absolutely. in film noir or in westerns. He played a lot of these thuggy type roles sure. until eventually he would break out and do some more different kind of stuff. Yeah, but even when he's playing the good guy, he's not really that good a guy. He's always got that edge to him whenever yeah. he's, he's always got that little, that anger, that meanness, that chip on his shoulder, yeah. regardless of, of who the character is. The one thing I noticed about Lee Marvin in this film, and I've noticed in many of his films, is if you just watch him when he's sitting in the chair, when he gets up, he has such an agility and a grace to his movements. Yeah, he does. He reminds me of a panther. Like, I always think he has a panther-like grace. Yeah, very much so. Yeah, he does have that kind of animalistic, like almost instinctual movement to him where he's always is ready to pounce. Yeah, and he never is really raising his voice or no. talking loudly, but he just is frightening. <laughs> yeah, he has moments. There's, there's like certain moments in this movie where he kind of has little outbursts, mm-hmm. but it's just for a moment. He's very calm. He's very still. And then that happens, that big outburst, and then he's right back to, he goes from zero to 60, right back to zero uh, in, in, in just a second. Yeah, so Spencer Tracy has come into the hotel. He's tried to get a room. They're telling him, oh, there's no rooms, even though clearly the hotel is completely empty. The clerk at the hotel, Pete, played by John Erickson, he's the hotel clerk. He's telling Spencer Tracy there's no room. Spencer Tracy, his character is called John J. McCready. McCready, yeah. So he's saying to McCready, there's no rooms. And Spencer Tracy's is pretty much like, uh, yeah, that's that's <laughs> that's not true. And he just takes a key yeah. and is like, I'm <laughs> going to take, take this, this room. And yeah. he ba- basically like, and the thing about Spencer Tracy or John McCready, the character, he's not intimidated by these people. No. He's not at all. No, he's not. And I mean, the one thing we should point out too is that he has his arm. Something's wrong with yeah, his arm. Yeah, there's something wrong with his arm. He, he basically has no he, use of his arm. He has no use arm. of his arm. Yeah, so. He sort of keeps it in his pocket all the time. So we don't know if he's lost his hand or we, yeah. we don't know what the situation but he, is. But he's basically. Basically, he's, wor- yeah, he's, he's working with one arm. And that kind of immediately makes the situation more scary for him. Yeah. Because even if he's 
able to handle himself, it looks like he's in over his head. Yeah. Because not only does he is he outnumbered by everybody in this town, but he also has that physical disability to deal with. Like I said, he's not intimidated by anybody, but he's also not trying to engage. He's clearly trying to not engage with anybody, just be a pacifist. Yeah. And he's trying to go about his business. And when they do things to make it difficult for him, for example, if they're crowding him, he just moves. He's just trying to avoid the situation. He's not trying to fight them. But then again, he's also not intimidated by them. So it's very interesting. Yeah, his character is very much, he's not a tough guy. These guys come and push him around and he allows himself to be pushed around. But it's, you almost get the idea that he's above it. It doesn't bother him. Like he, do, he doesn't care. He does, you know, get out of my seat. He gets up and gets out of their seat. It's, it's not a big deal to him. But at the same time, you're, you're trying this throughout the movie, trying to figure out where he's coming from because he seems to have some kind of agenda, something he wants. Yeah, trying to and do. in the beginning, we don't even know. Yeah. You don't know as a viewer what is going on at all because you don't know why the townspeople are acting like this. You don't know what he's doing there. You know nothing whatsoever. So you're just as confused as everybody is confused. Yeah, and I appreciate that. One of my biggest pet peeves in movies is exposition too much exposition. I kind of like it when a movie just throws you in and says try to keep up. So that's definitely what this movie does. He just shows up and you don't know what's going on with him. You don't know what the townspeople's problem is. And it's unraveling itself as it unravels for him. So he winds up getting the room and then all these people that are hanging about start to get into a state of panic. What is this guy doing here? And they have to go get this other fellow, this leader guy. His name winds up being Reno Smith. He's played by Robert Ryan and who appears to be, when he shows up, it's quite clear he's sort of the head yeah. of the these gang of people. Yeah, he doesn't have a title or anything, but he's very obviously in charge of this Yes. Town. We have a sheriff character who is, again, useless. the Western trope of the drunken mm-hmm. inept sheriff who is in name the law, but really has no power yeah, or authority. And, no this, power. and Reno Smith is the guy who is, is running the show. Yes, and Robert Ryan, he made a career of playing these kind of villains. Really bad guys, terrifying. He's yeah. also another one that's very calm and very terrifying. Everybody else with McCready very much in his face physically or maybe not literally shoving him around and Smith comes in and he's kind of charming and he's he's trying to be like oh I'm sorry about these guys but at the same time there's that underlying Underlying. threat at Mm -hmm. at all times so you see how he's able to maintain and control these people yeah and he has that very terrifying vehicle the station wagon yeah (laughs) (laughs) that's what all the big criminals are driving around in (laughs) (laughs) but again for this town I think we only see two vehicles so for I think for anybody to have a functioning yeah. vehicle with gas in this yeah. town is a sign of prestige. Well, and then actually, I almost forgot, when he first drives in, he's got a dead deer carcass yeah. over his hood, which I yeah. think is very symbolic as Absolutely, well. Yeah. He comes in, he kind of takes charge. He says, let me handle this and tells the thugs to keep an eye on him, right? But he's going to try to figure out what's going on. And McCready has told everybody he wants to go to this place called Adobe Flats. And as soon as he mentions this word, everybody gets all worried yeah and you're like why we don't know what has happened there sure as the film moves along he starts to ask for a fellow named kimono what was his name kimoko 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 kimono is like a (laughs) (laughs) that's not it uh kimoko yeah he starts asking about this fellow named kimoko Mm. we find out to be a japanese man that he was farming this adobe flat yeah so we find this much information out but we still don't know why everybody's so worried about the situation smith tells him that kimoko has been sent off to a relocation camp to a relocation camp yeah. yes which even when he says it as a viewer you don't really buy that no no yeah and I, I don't think he's even trying too hard to sell that story yeah kind of like free between the lines this is what we're saying it happened 
just go with it and get out. And meanwhile, Spencer Tracy does eventually figure out a way to get a vehicle. He winds up running into this girl at the garage. He's at the garage with Reno Smith, and this girl drives up in a Jeep. Her name is Liz, played by Anne Francis. She comes up and he says, oh, how much to rent your Jeep? And she says... 10 bucks or something and he gives her the money and he just drives off and meanwhile Reno Smith is infuriated yeah. at her and he pretty much threatens her and says that was a huge mistake you just made sure. and she's like what? He doesn't know what's going on but she turns out to be the sister of the fellow Pete that's the clerk at the hotel. Yeah. So there's all these different characters. So he goes out to the flats. He sees there's nothing there, but he does notice something important. He sees mm-hmm. some wildflowers. Yeah. He picks them up and puts them in his pocket and you're like, well... Well, what does that mean? <laughs> and he also sees the remains of the burned down house. Ah. There's a structure, a house or something that was burned down. And then, then he also finds the wildflowers. But again, you don't know, we don't know as a viewer what's going on. And I think he's still putting it Because again, he had no intention of finding anything like this when he came. Right. But we still don't know why he yeah, came. Yeah, we don't know why he came, but it doesn't seem like he was investigating anything. Right. He, he's finding this out as he goes along, but he finds the wildflowers, which is obviously some kind of clue, but we don't know what it is, and also the, the remains of the house. So then on his way back, he starts getting chased by this fellow. His name is Coley Trimble in the movie. Mm-hmm. It's Ernest Borgnine, yeah. who is another one that's great at playing thugs. Yeah, definitely. Actually coming up and ramming his car and trying to knock him off the road, he winds up eventually driving off the road. Yeah. And then when he gets back... <laughs> When he gets back to the hotel, (laughs) Coley comes up to him. Ernest Borgnine's character comes up to him and says, Oh, look what you did to my car. (laughs) (laughs) You wrecked my car. Look at the front of my car. And and McCready actually says, Well, let me pay for your damages. That's how far he's trying to avoid getting into a conflict with these Mm -hmm. people. The one thing that I think is really funny, and Spencer Tracy also thought this too, is that it's said right in the film that this is 1945. The clerk says that. And it comes out at some point in the film that Spencer Tracy's character has come from the war and that's how he has the problem with his arm. It was an injury from the war. But Spencer Tracy was 54 years old (laughs) when he made this film. He doesn't exactly look like a young soldier that just came out of the war. I don't really think they were taking 54-year-olds. He could have been an officer or something. He could have got wounded in an attack on headquarters or something like Tracy did point that out and said it was kind of weird for him to be playing. I'm too old for this Yeah, because I mean, this is, I don't even know if the war is, it's 45, but I don't know if the war is over at this point. It's coming to an end, obviously about know if the war has ended. And again, watching it, knowing it movie filmed in 1955, there's a little bit of dissonance in there. Think, okay, maybe it was 10 years ago. That makes sense. But when you think, no, this is 1945, it is a little odd. Definitely Spencer Tracy felt that was weird. Spencer Tracy, before we go further into the plot, Spencer Tracy didn't know if he wanted to play this role. Yeah. At this point, Dory Sherry was the producer of this film. He was the head of MGM at this time. He was brought over to replace Louis B. Mayer. They wanted to get rid of him. Dory Sherry was the head at RKO for a while. He like these kind of films, these more social conscious type films, sure. these were the kind of films he was trying to bring. So Dory Sherry, he really wanted Spencer Tracy in this role. And to be honest, the role didn't have the character having an injured arm. Yeah. It was just a regular character. But when Spencer Tracy saw the script and the character, he said, oh, this character doesn't really have any real meat to it. He, he wasn't interested in playing it. And so Sherry told the screenplay writer, which was Millard Kaufman, to write in the character's disability because yeah. he knew that Spencer Tracy wouldn't be able to resist sure. that. And he was correct. <laughs> but even so, Spencer Tracy, he was having a lot of problems with alcohol at this yeah. time. He wasn't feeling very well. He's older. And so he would say, yeah, I'll take the role. And then at the last minute, he'd try to back out. So he said right at the last minute, oh, you know, to Dory Sherry, I'm not going to take this role. And Dory said, well, you know, 
okay, Spencer. He said just a couple things. I did send the script to Alan Ladd, yeah. <laughs> and he, he's ready to go start shooting. Yeah. And then he said, and also, just to let you know that MGM is probably going to sue you for about $480,000 yeah. for the cost. And then Tracy suddenly decided he would take take the role. <laughs> it turned out that Alan Ladd never actually never saw the saw script. script. Yeah. No, that was just a complete, <laughs> complete bluff. Yeah. But we're lucky we have Spencer Tracy in this film because obviously Spencer Tracy, one of the greatest actors ever. Definitely. And also nominated for an Academy Award for the best actor in this film. He didn't win though because he lost out to fellow co-star Ernest Borgnine. Yeah, Marty was the big winner this year. Yeah. And I, that had to be a big deal for Borgnine because they said that he was very in awe, in awe of Spencer Tracy, very reverential. He called him Mr. Tracy Mr. the Tracy, entire time. Yep. So I think that must have been a, pr- a pretty big, not just to win the Oscar, but to beat out somebody like that who you just worked with, but also somebody you have so much respect for. Yeah. So it's just funny that they happen to both be in this film and sure. that he's the one that beat him out for the Oscar. It's just funny that you hear about these actors and their egos, the, yeah. you know, the fragile egos they have, and you think it's got to be exaggerated, but Sometimes you hear those stories like it must not have been. But as far as Spencer Tracy goes, this is very much a Spencer Tracy role. Yeah, you know, it's hard to imagine anybody else in this role because it has again he walks in and he just he carries himself like a Spencer Tracy character. It sounds like it's silly, but he has that same kind of attitude, you know, and taking on these people with these prejudices and these backwards ways of thinking. So many of his roles are very socially conscious like that. This is just fits in completely with them. Yeah, that's probably why Dory Sherry thought he was good for the role. Definitely. Another thing about Spencer Tracy, I don't know how you felt about the screenplay, the dialogue in the film, but I thought it was sometimes a little bit kind of cheesy, maybe. Not cheesy is probably not the word. I'm not sure what word I want, but when some of the other characters say dialogue, it just seemed kind of blah. When Spencer Tracy says certain things, what probably was kind of bland dialogue actually takes on a better context when Spencer Tracy says it. Like I'm thinking about when Robert Ryan would say something and he'd immediately fire a question at him. And it's just the way he says the dialogue is so very effective and it really works really well. No, I agree. I think he does the best with it because that's one of my biggest complaints about the movie is that his character we've been alluding to, we really don't know who he is or why he's there, which I think is okay. I enjoy having that ambiguous character, but I don't think the movie does enough to unravel it. Mm-hmm. To like really give us enough insight as to who he is, what his motivation is, not only why he's there, but why he continues to do what he does or doesn't do. Towards the end of the movie, there's a pretty big exposition dump where he spells it all out. Right. And I think it would have been better if the movie kind of pieced that out for us. Well, the character isn't very fleshed out. Like, no. you don't really get much of a backstory on the character. As a matter of sure. fact, you never get a backstory on no. the character, except for the fact that he was in the war. At the end, he starts telling things about himself. This is the way I view certain things. And you don't get that sense throughout the rest of the movie. He's just doing things or not doing things, but you really don't get an idea why. The screenplay, this was based on a short story by Howard Breslin, and it was actually called Bad Time at Honda. Yeah. They switched it. It was adapted to film by a screenwriter. Again, we said him, Miller. Kaufman and he was actually nominated for an Academy Award for this so despite what you and I think (laughs) (laughs) apparently somebody thought it was very good he was nominated also for Take the High Ground and a thing I really liked about Miller Kaufman when I was looking it up he was listed as the screenwriter for Gun Crazy which is a really great film noir but he would repeatedly tell everybody when he was given credit for that that he was only fronting for Dalton Trumbo because he wrote the script when Trumbo was blacklisted and then he actually asked to have his name removed from the credits and Trumbo 
Trumbo's put in oh, there wow. because he thought that Trumbo was the one that should get hmm. the credit. And also another thing about Miller Kaufman is he fought in World War II as a Marine and he won the Bronze Star for Bravery Under okay. Fire. Most likely before he was in the movies, could be while he was doing the movies, but most of the times when actors or people in the movies went into the war or went into the armed service, they didn't actually go and fight in the actual battles. Yeah. They tended to have other roles, but we have several people in this particular film that did fight in the war. Lee Marvin, another. Lee Marvin was also in the Marines. We have a lot of Marines in this film. Yeah. Lee Marvin was in the Marines. He fought in World War II. He was injured. He was wounded. He got a purple heart. I think Borgnine was in the Navy, right? Borgnine was in the Navy for 10 years before he even came to acting. And Robert Ryan was in the Marines as well. It was also in World War II. So there's a lot of people together in this film that were all Marines or they were servicemen. This whole generation of actors, I think a lot of them had that experience. And I think it colors the movies and the performances. I think you see there's a realness to that that you don't get from other actors who may have not seen what these guys have seen. We probably just get the tip of the iceberg and a lot of turmoil. These guys have seen a lot of violence, a lot of ugliness of the world. Talking about Lee Marvin. Yeah, Lee Marvin was on the front lines. Like, yeah. Lee Marvin was in the battle. He was not an actor at this time. He was a young kid. He was about 18 years old. We talk about his personality that he brings through in his films. I think that has a lot in the formation of that. Yeah, so anyhow, back to the film. Yeah. <laughs> um, so we wind up finding out, after this whole thing happens, we do wind up finding out that Robert Ryan's character, Reno Smith, well, first of all, we find out that he hated Komoko because yeah. he was Japanese. We find out he's Japanese, which kind of we could tell from the name. But we find out that he hated him because he was Japanese because what happened was, he kept referring to when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. He sure. says that a couple times in the film. And apparently when the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor, he went out to enlist. Yeah. Reno Smith we're talking about. He was turned down. Yeah. And he came back and he was so angry that he was, ter- first of all, that he was turned down for this. And also he had this great hatred all of a sudden of Japanese people. And unfortunately there's this poor fellow, Komoko, just innocently trying to farm yeah, definitely. his land. And he thinks, well, if they won't let me go in the army and kill Japanese people, then maybe I'll just go about killing them in the civilian life. Yeah, and it's such an interesting character, Reno Smith, where he is that type of guy that he goes and gets rejected. Don't go too in-depth as to why he got rejected, just say physical. Couldn't pass the physical. Yeah, and you imagine he has quite the ego. Yeah. So that had to have been a huge... And he's the kind of guy who's going to take that as, you're less of a man. Yes, you know, Agreed. and it was very emasculating for him. And you see, he's going to lash that out on somebody. And he needs to have that control. And I think that's just how it is. You see this all the time. You see it after 9-11. You saw it with Americans of Middle Eastern descent took on this burden of people feeling that way, where I'm going to do something in my own small little right. sad way. I'm going to have control over this. Yeah. And I think that's what Reno Smith is doing here. We do find out that he killed this person. Yeah. So does John McCready. Yeah. The unfortunate thing is that John McCready now wants to leave town immediately. Yeah. And he can't. He's I thought that was really interesting where they tell him, get out. At first, he's like, okay, I'm not going to go anywhere. I just got to do what I'm here to do. But once the threats of physical violence happen... Well, see, once he realizes what actually happened yeah. to... But even before that, when they start threatening him physically, he's like, I'm just going to go. It's not a matter of like, I'm going to get to the bottom of this or I'm going to see justice done. I'm just getting out. Right. You know, I'm done. Then at that point, though, they know he knows too much. Yeah. And they can't let him go. Movie from that point on is basically just a matter of survival for him. I think that's what you know, we were talking about, like the moral ambiguity of these type of movies. There's no like, white hat hero marching until there's no Gary Cooper in High Noon. I want to take the high road. I want to see. I just want to get out. I just want to survive. Yeah. What's my quickest way to get out of this town? He's trying to find ways not to take these people down, not take Rita Smith down, but to 
escape. Yeah, but we do have the sense, too, that if he escaped, he was going to report them. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. He's going to let somebody else take care of it. Yeah, Yeah, he's not going to just let them go, but he's not the guy. He's not going to take justice into his own hands. First of all, he has somebody in the town that is interested in helping him. Yeah. And that's Doc, and that's played by Walter Brennan. Mm -hmm. Before we get into that, though, we should address the fact that although Smith did the killing, basically the entire town did on it. They basically went to harass him. Yes. They were just angry. They said they started drinking at noon or before noon, and they got drunk, and they said, let's go just give him a hard time. And that was everybody else's goal. Smith ended up killing him. Right. And now they're all culpable. Yeah, they're and all so, like accomplices. Yeah, they're all accomplices. And I think that's a really interesting in the movie because you see how he has to maintain control at this point and keep this town. You know, we talked about how this was a town that time passed by. And for Smith to keep this secret, he has to let it. Yeah. He says something about there's not enough water in this town. That's how backwards this town is, yes. is that they don't even have enough water for their basic needs. He's talking about the Old West, refer to the Old West and the Wild West. This is 1945, it's not 1865. Yes. But that's how backwards he has to keep this town to protect himself and maintain that secret. Yeah. But some of these people, they don't feel remorse. Like Lee Marvin's character, yeah. which is Hector. Hector doesn't feel remorse. Ernest Borgnine's character doesn't feel remorse. But Pete, the hotel clerk... Mm-hmm. You can see he wavers. He doesn't feel really good about it. And of course, Doc, I don't think that Doc was necessarily directly involved in the harassment. I I think perhaps he was on the outskirts of that. I think everybody, either people were directly involved or they're just by association involved yes. because they did nothing. They're all involved in the cover right. now, whether right. they wanted to be or not. Doc and the sheriff, sure. I don't think we're there. No. And those are the people that are, Doc is definitely on his side. Yeah. He wants to help him. He tries to get him out of town, yeah. and that's thwarted by Hector. He sure. comes out and just rips wires out of the yeah. car, like very, <laughs> very Lee Marvin, right? Walter Brennan having him in this movie, I think going back to the Western tropes and the Western themes, very much he's that guy. He has that old-timey Western voice. I think just having his presence. Well, he was in so many Westerns. Yeah. He was in so many Westerns. Yeah, he was. And I think that was a, I don't want to call it stunt casting, but I think that was on purpose bringing him in, just having his persona in this movie added so much to that old West feel. The thing that's interesting about this is, again, Walter Brennan is playing Doc, who's playing his ally, but in real life, Spencer Tracy and Walter Brennan hated each other because of political reasons. And especially Walter Brennan hated Catherine Hepburn, who Spencer Tracy was, you know, dating Spencer Tracy. So they did not get along as they wouldn't even talk to each other. They would relay things through the director or whoever. And at one point, Walter Brennan, when he was really aggravated, would hold up three fingers. So petty. And do you know what the, he held up three fingers for? Because it's three Oscars. He, is, he had three yeah. Oscars and Spencer Tracy had two. <laughs> He's so incredibly petty. They do well in the film. They, oh, yeah. They seem like allies. And then you see the other people start to waver. Pete decides to come on their side and help. Yeah. The sheriff, he wants to help, but he just, he's too dead in size or yeah. whatever. He just excuses himself from the whole thing. He doesn't have anything to do with it. He yeah. just wants out of the whole situation. So they devise a plan, try to get Spencer Tracy out of town. Yes. And and also, they're again assisted by the sister, Liz, as well. But we think that Liz is assisting them, but it turns out that maybe she's not. And I'm afraid to talk too much more about the plot because I think we're going to sure. get into the point where we're going to spoil. Yeah. I will say, I think it's interesting that idea of that communal guilt that mm-hmm. they all bear. And like you said, every character is guilty to a different degree and handles that guilt to a different, different degree. Yeah. And I think it's, it's fun to watch each one of them and Spencer Tracy feeling them out and seeing where they're at. Okay, who can I trust? Yes. Who can I get on my side? Who 
can I use to advance this? And you see him, especially with Pete, because Pete's kind of the one that's the most on the fence. You know, right. he was he was actually there. He saw it happen, so he's a little more responsible. But he also feels a lot more guilty, guilty. than mm-hmm. the rest of the guys that were there. So watching the game between him and Spencer Tracy trying to win him over to his side, and it's crucial to their plan that he's on their side. So I think that's just really interesting to watch the different characters yeah. go through those kind of different character arcs. The sheriff, especially with him, that idea of the lowly sheriff who's been put down and emasculated, re- rediscovering himself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so maybe that's where the Oscar comes in for the screenplay. Yeah, Not definitely. necessarily the dialogue so much, but the character development. Yeah, the side characters are good, but Spencer Tracy, I think his presence is what sells that character. Well, all the actors are really good in this film, yeah. I think. And Spencer Tracy, for example, said that Robert Ryan actually really scared him in the yeah. film. <laughs> like he was actually terrified of Robert Ryan, yeah. the way he was acting, because Robert Ryan made a career playing these bigoted type characters. Yeah. And the furthest thing from a bigot, he actually was involved with fighting against racism in his regular life, but he played all these horrible, bigoted characters. And I think the dynamic between the two of them is so so great because Ryan and Spencer Tracy never raise their voices to each other. No. There are scenes where they're literally just sitting next to each other in the hotel lobby, like shoulder to shoulder, just having a conversation. Just the, the game between them, keeping up this idea of civility. Yeah. where Spencer Tracy knows Smith is going to try to kill him, but they maintain that idea of we're just, just a couple of guys hanging out, and I think that's a really cool dynamic between yeah, the Yeah, I mean, I think they played off each other beautifully, and we have five Oscar winners in this film. Yeah. And the one person who's not an Oscar winner, which I think is very wrong, is Robert Ryan. Get long on time here, but just a few quick other notes. I guess we should probably mention the cinematographer because the cinematography is oh, gorgeous in this yeah, film. Yes. Shot in Cinemascope widescreen. The cinematographer was William C. Meller. He won two Academy Awards. Actually, he won an Academy Award for A Place in the Sun, which is a movie I really like. And The Diary of Anne Frank. He was also nominated for Peyton Place and The Greatest Story Ever Told. He also was the cinematographer on Giant. So this is sort of the same sort yeah. of Western type film. And I think what's great about the cinematography is how it juxtaposes with the subject matter. You have these beautiful vistas and these aerial shots of this town, and it's just about this tiny little town mm. with small-minded people, and it's just a very small story at the end of the day. But you have these this beautiful views and very yeah. beautiful look to it. And I think a lot of these Westerns, the best Westerns have that kind of feel to it, both sides of that coin. Especially the panoramic shots yeah. in the beginning are just really, really beautiful. But we should talk about the director, John Sturgis, who was nominated for Best Director Academy Award for this film. And he is known for Westerns and specifically The Magnificent Seven and The Great Escape. Um, he said one of his proudest moments was when he met Kurosawa, who made the original, The Seven Samurai, which The Magnificent Seven was based on. And Kurosawa told him that he loved The Magnificent seven and he said that was the most proudest moment of his life it should be when i read carousel actually sent him an engraved sword after magnificent seven that's pretty cool i just want to talk about the academy awards also lost best director to marty yeah marty was the big marty the big one i think we should delve into that sometime what was going on in 1955 because you look at marty and it's not a bad movie it's a cute movie but it's a small little movie romantic dramedy i guess you'd call it very low stakes this movie yeah. It's a deeper movie, a heavier movie, darker movie with more like social message to yes. it. Where you look a couple years later, another Spencer Tracy movie dealing with the fallout of World War II, Judgment Nuremberg, I think it gets nominated for 11 Oscars. Mm. So I think we're right on the cusp of when you're starting to see that change of attitudes towards what kind of movies people are looking to, what's considered a big prestige film. Yeah, Dury Sherry was kind of on the cutting edge there with these kind of films. 
the composer. Dory Cherry didn't want music in this film. Yeah. He didn't want any music. And there's a lot of time in this film where it's just talking and there's nothing in the background. It's quiet. But Andre Previn, he was the composer. He won four Academy Awards, but mostly for musicals. He was more of a musicals guy. He won for My Fair Lady, Irma LaDuce, Porgy and Besh, and Gigi. But he also did a film that I particularly like, a more modern film, Leon the Professional. Oh, did he do the music for that? Yes, isn't that interesting? Oh, wow. That film is very interesting yeah, and that music is, is very interesting but in this film there isn't a big score they didn't want any music there, there no. is of course there is some music yeah but especially it's, at the beginning it's very dramatic music yeah. in the beginning it's like like you said match with the train coming in and all these dramatic events yeah and I think they just wanted, like you said, more ambient noise, like the sound of the town. Yeah, it's just funny. Like, okay, we don't want to have much music in, so we're going to hire this guy that yeah. <laughs> is known for composing a lot of music, yeah. especially musicals. <laughs> Strange. But it works. So, I mean, yeah. I guess they knew what they were doing. Mm-hmm. I do want to say, I don't know if you saw this or not, but, and I think this is a great claim to fame for this film and how great this film is. This film is the most screened in the White House screening room over the years, according to the projectionist records. Oh, wow. That makes sense. So they have shown this film in the White House more than any other film. Okay, I kind of feel good about that. I hope people are taking it to heart when they watch it. Do you think just Ronald Reagan watched it? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, like three times a day. It made me curious watching the movie, the story of what happened to this guy. So I started researching to see if there was a lot of violence towards Japanese Americans after Pearl Harbor. Probably. It's interesting. I couldn't find a lot of examples of specific violent acts done by citizens. And I think it's because the government was so proactive in doing it for them. Yeah. We mentioned they said the character was taken to relocation camps. That was a real thing. After Pearl Harbor, and again, I compare this to 9-11. You saw it after 9-11 with Muslim Americans, the paranoia surrounding them. It was kind of the same thing where every Japanese citizen almost was under suspicion. And these weren't new immigrants. These are second generation, third generation Americans who were being accused of these things. And the biggest fear was the Japanese citizens on the West Coast because that's where they were afraid there might be an attack at. So the original plan was to relocate them to more rural areas, more inland, and have them work there throughout the course of the war. And I read this quote when this plan was suggested. This is from Idaho's Attorney General, Burt Miller. He said, we want to keep this a white man's country. (laughs) All Japanese should be put in concentration camps for the remainder of the war. So just so amazing that while there are Americans fighting and dying in Europe, because of the people they had in concentration camps, we actually had our own because oh, they did do word. this. They they had relocation centers. They made camps. Now it wasn't. I'm not. Ju- I'm not justifying it, but it wasn't as gruesome as it was in Europe. But they had no freedom. They were trapped here, and it's a credit to the resiliency of these people that they developed communities because they were there for years. Yeah. In the course of the war, hundreds of thousands of people were in these camps, and it's crazy. It's not something we talk about, and I think this movie speaks to it because mm-hmm. in this movie, it's an open they secret. Talk about it. It's an open secret of what happened to this guy that they killed, and it's an open secret in America. We all know it happened, but no one really talks about it much. It's crazy. So I think a movie like this, when you say they watch in the White House a lot, I'm glad because it's something that definitely is being thought about and remembered and brought to people's attention. Yeah, it's funny because we talked in an earlier episode of the podcast, uh, The Sweet Smell of Success, about the cinematographer on that, James Wong Howe, I think Mm -hmm. is his name, and how he had to wear a button after World War II saying, I am Chinese, because he was so persecuted because he was Asian. Wow. And people thought he was Japanese. And he actually had to wear a button, walk around wearing a button saying I am Chinese. That is so insane. people wouldn't bully him. Yeah. And then they said that James Cagney was a good friend of his and he also <laughs> wore a button and, in camaraderie sure. with him. That's an example of what Japanese Americans faced at that time. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a lot to talk about in this particular yeah. film. This we have to give our we have to give our star ratings. This is a great film. Yeah. See this film. This film is readily available. You can find this film. Yeah. I DVR'd it off the TV. It's, okay. it's on cable occasionally. Uh, you can probably definitely get a copy of this from your library. Sure. I don't know if you saw if it was available 
available streaming anywhere in particular. I got it from the library, so I didn't. I yeah. Just, yeah I didn't I, it probably it. is. Oh, I'm it's sure it is. It's a yeah. really, it's, movie, it's yeah. an easily found film. So please see this film. I'm, well, you do your star rating first. Okay. I'm going to give it a four. A solid four. It's a good movie. You know, we talked about some of the nitpicks here and there, but I think yeah. it's a really solid movie. I'm going to go four out of five. I'm also giving it a four. Nice. How did you know? <laughs> We're just right on the same wavelength right? with our, Most well, not last, yeah. not last, <laughs> not the last episodes, but yeah, this is a four. And I gave Sweet Smell a success of four too, which is a film noir that I love so much. So this speaks to how much I really like this particular sure, film. definitely. I think we have <laughs> gone quite over our time yeah. today. So <laughs> I hope that our listeners have enjoyed this and we will be back next time with another Another great film. See you then. Yeah. Have a great day. Goodbye. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to Silver Screen Time Machine. Be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a comment and review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Intro music composed by Heidi Engel. Outro music composed by Maximus Monk. Artwork by Tyler Birch. Produced and edited by Wendy Wittick and Kirk Kolkowski. Recorded at PCTV Studios in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. We'll see you next time.